Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. You know, if you didn't know better, you'd think Wes Moore was invented by a Hollywood scriptwriter. His story is that extraordinary, that inspiring. Army officer, Rhodes Scholar, financier, best-selling author, anti-poverty warrior, and now the first black elected governor of Maryland, and that actually cheats his story. You'll have to listen to this conversation to hear the rest. Wes Moore, Governor-elect Moore, it's a pleasure to be with you. I've been wanting to talk to you for a very long time, but I know you've been busy for the last year and a half, so it's good to catch up with you. I'm not sure you're less busy now. It is It is so good to catch up with you, and, it, and it's great to catch up with you in this phase as, uh, as we're getting ready to actually govern now. This is good. This is exciting. Yeah, yeah. Well, as we were discussing before we started rolling, that's the, if you're doing this right, that's the payoff, uh, the chance to actually accomplish things. Let, let, let's talk about your story, which is quite a extraordinary story. And then we should talk about where you go from here, where Maryland goes from here. But um, talk to me about your family and, and your, your, your deep back family. And then let's talk about your parents, who've, both of whom in their own way played a, a, such an extraordinary role in your life. I knew from an early age that I wanted to vote uh, devote my life to service. And a lot of it was because of my family and my family's journey. And, um, and my life in many ways has just been, it's been littered with the consequences of bad policies and littered with the consequences of inequitable policies. And, uh, and we're literally some of the, you know, some of the first memories, um, that I have when I was growing up where, you know, I only have two memories of, of my father. Um, and, and the second one, was when uh was when he died in front of me because he didn't get the healthcare that he needed when I was just month shot by my fourth birthday. Um, you know, where where some of the earliest memories I have was when I was I was eleven years old. I don't want to interrupt, but I want to ask you about this because this, you know, as I was reading your story, um, uh, this was so striking to me. And your dad, uh, both your parents were in the broadcast sort of journalism realm. That's, that's how they met. Your father had a sore throat that wouldn't go away. Your mom sent him to the hospital. They looked him over and sent him home. Is that right? Right. And when, and when he went to the, uh, when he went to the hospital, there was assumptions about whether or not he had insurance, uh, that, uh, that, you know, that when he was, when he was there, uh, that, you know, that he was literally, uh, you know, the, um, was his head was, was tilting and bobbing back and forth um, because what they didn't realize uh, was that he was suffering from something called acute epiglottitis, which is essentially where in the epiglottis in all of our throats, every time we breathe or chew or talk, the epiglottis lifts up and it allows air 
into mm-hmm. our body with a acute epiglottitis. So essentially what it was is it becomes so swollen that it can't lift on its own and your body essentially suffocates itself. And he was struggling to get air. Huh? He was struggling to get air. And they, their assumption, you're saying their assumption was something else because here was this African-American guy in the emergency room. W- what do you think their assumption was? I think that the assumption was just simply that this was not worth further investigation. Mm-hmm. Uh, literally to the point that when my mom got there, they asked my mom, is your husband prone to exaggeration? Mm. That was the assumption that he was exaggerating. And he was asked to leave the hospital with the, with the instructions to go home and get some rest. And if it got worse, to come back. And, uh, and literally hours later, he died in front of me. Tell me about that, because you say it's a memory. Three-year-olds don't generally have that many memories, but that one obviously was so horrific, so vivid. What, what do you remember about that? Because I just, my heart just broke when I saw that. Memory that I have was, um, he was, he was upstairs. We lived in a, a, a small home in a place called, uh, it's called Tacoma Park. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and he was upstairs getting some rest as they instructed him to do. And I remember as he was coming, I heard him coming down the steps. And so I remember going to the steps to go see him as he was coming down the steps. And the only thing that I remember was him collapsing down the mm. steps. And mm. then the thing that I remember is a crash coming in from where my mom was inside the kitchen because she was cooking something and she heard that and then dropped the, the, the pan or whatever she was cooking. And I remember hearing, watching him crash and then hearing a crash come from the kitchen and then just clouds and not even understanding what was going on or what this chaos was. I literally remember watching tumble down the steps. Uh, and that was a memory that I have of him and, and literally to the point that I didn't understand what was happening or what was going on where, um, at his funeral, uh, I went up to go view the body with my uncle for the last time inside of, inside of the casket. And, uh, and, um, my mother tells the story how I, how I actually asked my, I asked my father, uh, if he was going to come with us. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't understand why he was laying in there. Mm. So none of this. So this, this would, these were literally some of the earliest memories that I have of watching where my father was very much left behind in this process. There's no reason that he should have been laying in that casket on yeah. that day. Uh, and, and, and I watched how um, it didn't just define the level of confusion and frankly, the level, the level of anger that I had coming up, um, it also defined how life was now just um, irreparably changed for my mom, who was now, and, and she was an immigrant to this country. She immigrated to this country from Jamaica, uh, you know, with now had three children um, that she now had to figure out how to raise on her own. Where, you're, are you, where, where are you among the three in the order? I'm the middle and the only boy. I have an older sister uh, who's about six years older than me, and I have a younger sister who's uh, uh, about 13 months younger mm-hmm. than me. And, uh, and so for my older sister, uh, she actually more than myself and definitely more than my younger sister um, understood what was going on and what, and, and, and what happened. And, uh, and I think for, for her, uh, 
it was even, it was that much more complicated because uh, the, the confusion that I had about what was going on and, and why all this was happening and where was my father and what was happening and what, you know, what happened to him. Um, you know, unfortunately, I think for that time in my, in my sister's life, you know, she's that, that time around, you know, 10, 11, uh, she understood it clearly. And, and I think that loss, uh, was not just palpable, but I think even for her, it, it showed itself in a lot of ways. And she, she got older as well. Your family moved from, uh, Tacoma Park, uh, to, to the East Bronx in the aftermath of this to be with your, your mother's family. Talk about that and the sort of change in your life? You know, I, I think my mother, my mother struggled significantly because just, I don't know, unexpectedly and in a very unprepared fashion, she was now going to be, you know, this single mom who was going to raise three kids on her own. And she struggled because, uh, you know, one, she didn't trust the neighborhood. It wasn't a great neighborhood that we were coming in, but also, uh, you know, she was trying to figure out how is she now going to navigate this new world um, with her children. And she sought refuge from the, uh, from the only place that she knew where to seek refuge from. And that was her parent mm-hmm. and, and my, and my grandparents, uh, yeah, they lived, they lived in the, uh, in the Bronx, right off of a place called Gun Hill road. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and my grandfather was a minister. He was a, uh, a minister whose story is actually really remarkable in the fact that he was the first one of my mom's side of the family born in the United States. But when he was just a toddler, it was a Ku Klux Klan that actually ran them out of the country. But he eventually came back to this country, went to an HBCU, and he became the first black minister in the history of the Dutch Reformed Church. And, uh, and uh, so he and my grandmother, who was actually born in Cuba, immigrated to Jamaica and then finally came to the United States with her husband at the time. They had this small home uh, in, the, uh, in, in the Bronx. But I would say even though it was a small home, they figured out a way to make it big enough for all of us. Yeah, quintessential American story. My uh, my dad was an immigrant from Eastern Europe and landed in the Bronx, but a few years before probably your your family did. Did the absence of a dad, and I lost my dad when I was 19, so I was a little older, but still, the absence of a dad. You had a strong figure in, in your grandfather. Tell me how the absence of your dad impacted on you. I think the absence of my, of, of my dad still impacts. And, and it's, and it's partially because I think that, you know, there were, there were, uh, there were so much that my mom could teach, uh, you know, could teach me and did teach me. Mm-hmm. Um, but that absence and the, the uniqueness of what it meant to come up as a young man, to come up as a young black man in a community that didn't always look kindly on young black men. Uh, she could never teach me that, right? She could advise, but she did not, that mm-hmm. didn't come inherently, that didn't, that wasn't inherent to her. And so there was so much, so many things that I then had to either learn on my own or I had to learn from the people who were willing to teach me. And, and so it really did kind of, you know, lead to this, to this larger belief that I have. And I think for a lot of the work that I've done as I've come up is that understanding that our kids and particularly, you know, for our young boys, they're going to learn, but the question is who's teaching them mm-hmm. and what are they learning? And so I, I think for much of what, uh, for a lot of my childhood, uh, was, uh, was exhausted by this idea of finding yourself trying to, you know, trying to fit in into the areas in a way that could keep you both safe and accepted, but knowing that sometimes those two things were at a head and yeah. those two things challenged each other. 
And I think those are some of the things and some of the challenges that I had when I was coming up that I had to you know, learn the hard way now. And challenges so many, uh, particularly, not, but not exclusively, young black men face today. I mean, I think this is a, f- a fundamental issue. Um, the lack of a father, the lack of a strong male figure has plagued a lot of young men. Oh, we saw it in, 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 my, in my neighborhood as well, right? Where, and they were for, for different reasons. Mine, you know, uh, you know, mine, uh, because he, he couldn't, uh, in some cases of some of the other fathers, it's, it was for different, different reasons. But I remember for, you know, for my crew, when I was coming up, I remember there was, you know, of, of the small group of us that were coming from the Bronx, one of us had a father in the home, mm. one. And so that dynamic, you know, was something in that, in that feeling of where, you know, we were coming up with, with, with moms as really being the you know, the, 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 the head of the household and the sole person that you were then leaning on and relying on um, was a shared dynamic for many of us who came up together. And, uh, and so while, I, and while I, I, I don't know if I fully appreciate at the time how important, you know, my grandfather mm-hmm. was at the time because he was very much not just a pillar of my life, but also a pillar of a, of a community. I also know that that absence that I felt of having my dad not there, it was... Um, it, w- it was real in that hole, uh, you know, you try to fill it with a lot of things that oftentimes became um, either counterproductive or, or, or dangerous. Yeah. And your mother recognized that and she took you out of the public schools, put you in the Riverdale Country School, which is quite an exclusive place. Tell me about the, I mean, you kind of lived in two worlds there and it didn't go all that well, I guess. You know, it was funny because you know, it, it really, as, as soon as we came up there, uh, as soon as we came up, uh, you know, to, to New York, my mother was trying to find a way to try to a different place and space for me. And, you know, she uh, always had heard about this school called Riverdale. Uh, and, and Riverdale was a place that was right on the Hudson River. Uh, it was the school that John F. Kennedy went to. Um, it was also a school that she had not she didn't think for, for a second would be the, you know, a, a place that, that her kids could go to. But, you know, my mother, uh, and, and I don't know if I, I know, I don't even fully appreciate the sacrifice that she made because my mother was working multiple part-time jobs. In fact, you know, right before I got out of there and got sent to military school, she was working three different jobs, three different jobs in order to get what she needed in order for this to be real to the point that she was waking up uh, you know, she'd wake us up, uh, as we we're heading off, she was out the door before we were leaving for school. My grandparents were the ones who were bringing me to the train station and then taking the train up to, you know, taking the multiple trains and buses that it took to get to the, to Riverdale. And by the time my mom got back home from her last job, oftentimes we were already asleep. And so that was a dynamic. Yeah. That's extraordinary. Did you go ride the trains and buses by yourself? That was actually part of the problem because what ended up happening was I didn't make it to school. And so it was way too easy to find something else to do. And yeah. so, and so, you know, I'm at this, I'm at this school in, in, uh, you know, uh, a school called Riverdale where, you know, I very quickly found myself, uh, to, to, to poor for the kids in school. And then when I come back home, I now find myself too rich for the kids in my neighborhood who didn't understand why I was now going to school across town. Yeah. Uh, and so you find yourself in this middle, you find yourself where you're almost trying to adapt to your different environments and to your different areas. 
which is maddening and incredibly frustrating for a kid, you know, at, at that age. And so, so you're right where the trains and the, the trains and the, and the buses that I would take in order to get to the school, where that played an important role is, uh, is my mother didn't realize just how many days I was missing because I'd get on the train and I'd go somewhere else or I'd, you know, I'd skip the day. But also what my mother didn't realize until I, um, until I got sent away to another school was even though the teachers knew I was missing school, as they would, as they, uh, would, uh, would, would say this class worked better when I wasn't there. Uh, and so they never, because you, they, they thought you were disruptive and I, they didn't think I was disruptive. I was disruptive. <laughs> so, yeah. so as they said, the class was better when I wasn't there. And so the idea of being able to flag my, uh, my truancy wasn't, wasn't high on their priorities. And so your mother's uh, solution to that was the Valley Forge Military School. And how did you feel about that when she told you that you were being sent away to military school? I know I felt how most uh, 13 and 14 year old young boys getting sent to military school. And that's the thing. My mother had been threatening me with military school ever since I was eight. Right. <laughs> She would, she would look at my grades and all stuff. And she would like, you know what, uh, you know, I, I'm going to send you away. And then when I was nine, you know, she started getting brochures to show me she wasn't playing around. And I, I felt blown her off because I was like, there's no way she's ever going to send me. And then, uh, and then when I was, uh, 13 years old, uh, was when, uh, my mom said, you know what, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to send you away. And I was like, you know, I was like, all right, mommy, I'm gonna work harder. And then she's like, no, you're going next week. And she started packing my stuff up. And I honestly thought that this was some like beyond scary straight, right? Like, you know, we're uh-huh. going to drive around the block and, you know, I'd have to show her I was, you know, tried and all the kind of stuff. And, and she sent me back home and she literally drove to Pennsylvania and dropped me off at this military school. And when I first arrived at that school, I, I still thought that this was just a very bad joke. And I was telling the people when I first showed up, I was like, listen, um, I'm not going to be here long. You don't have to waste your time on me. Uh, we're sorting out the paperwork right now. You know, so really, I was ready to go. And I ran away five times in the first four days of military school uh, because they had these big black gates. And every time they, you know, they'd yell and scream and tell us uh, there's a train station out in Wayne, Pennsylvania. I would just take them up on their offer and try to find the train station and run out the gate. And then the second to last time I tried to run away, it was actually because they drew me a map that was fake on how to get to the train station. And they just literally watched me do circles wow. in the woods uh, to get to find, try to find this train station. Kind of cruel. It, it was, it was, it was very cruel, but I got to tell you, if, I, if I'm, if I'm honest, it's the same strategy I used when I became a leader at the school <laughs> for, for a lot of the young who were coming on board to watch them do those same circles that I did when I first got there. But I, I, I hated that place. Yeah. Well, let me ask you about this because kids don't understand your dad dies you he's gone so you've you've lost your dad now your mom drops you off and you're separated from your family i mean did you f- feel a little bit like you had been abandoned there i know she felt it was for your own good but how did you feel i think you just hit the nail on the head there's a level of abandonment that you feel right there's a frustration and an anger that you feel where I, and, and I, and I remember, David, I remember being out in the, the, the woods that one time when they actually drew me a map on how to get to the train station, um, that I thought was a real map. And I was literally going out in the middle of the woods and 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't realize that the map was, they were literally just playing a joke on me. And I remember at some point when I was in the middle of the woods, I was terrified because I was, uh, you know, both because I was hearing a bunch of noises and I thought it was like snakes and bears or whatever else was chasing me in the middle of the woods. But also I was just, um, I was angry and I was scared. And I felt like I was trying to explain to the people there what I needed. And what I needed was to go home. But I felt like they weren't hearing me and neither was my mom. Mm-hmm. And so you do, you feel very, you feel very alone. And, and, and I do remember that, um, that, uh, that time when they found me in the middle of the woods and they brought me back to campus and I'm crying and they're laughing and they told me I was allowed to have one phone call. Uh, they said, call whoever you want. We don't care, but you got five minutes. And I called the only number that I had memorized and that was my mom. Explain to her, I'm sorry, I want to come home. Can you come get me and all this kind of stuff? And she stopped me in the middle of my diatribe and she said, too many people have sacrificed in order for you to be there. People are rooting for you and you have to understand it's not all about you. And that night, I don't think I really understood what now she was talking about. That's I just wanted to go home. But I think that as those days went on, the idea of understanding sacrifice and people were making for me, the idea of when I later on learned that my grandparents had actually mortgaged and take money out of their home in the Bronx to help to pay for that year because there was no way my mom could have done it on her own. The level of sacrifice that people were making on my behalf, I started to get a better understanding of and that level of, 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 of aloneness that I thought I existed in. I realized that that entire time, you know, I wasn't alone. I had a whole lot of people who were pouring into me in a way that I didn't fully understand or appreciate. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. And now, back to the show. But you ended up excelling there. And was that the turning point? Was that... I mean, what, when did you start sort of seeing yourself in that environment, feeling it, becoming confident? Because you ended up being a, a, a huge leader there and, you know, class president and excelling in athletics and in all ways becoming sort of a model student. And it feels like there had to be some sort of transition. Was that the transition? Honestly, I, I think the transition for me was leadership. And, you know, because people sometimes will say with military school where they're like, you know, oh, it's, it's great that they teach you discipline or they make you do push-ups or they make you wake up in the morning. And all that is true. Yes, you'll wake up early, you'll do push-ups, you'll do all that stuff. But that for me wasn't the transition. For me, the transition was the first time that they put me in charge of something. They're going to put you in charge of something and there's this graduated sense of responsibility and they start with something that's small, right? They start with a small unit of accountability. Make sure a hallway is clean. Make sure the trash cans are empty. Make sure whatever it is. And then if it's done right, they'll say, you know, congratulations. And if it's done wrong, they'll say, Lord, help you. And, and then eventually once you do well, they'll give you more responsibility. And so there's this graduated sense of responsibility that happens that I think was really important and powerful for me because when you now feel that you're accountable for something, when you feel like you're responsible for something other than yourself, 
your behavior begins to change. And, and so that was, I think, one of the biggest turning points for me when people say it was, it wasn't about the first six weeks. The first six weeks, they're just hazing you, right? They're breaking you down as an individual so they can build you up as a unit. But that wasn't, that was the, that was the, the entry point. The thing I think that really changed me once I got there and where even at the end of my first year, where I had a chance to leave, I had a chance to go back to school uh, in Maryland. Uh, but the thing that I think that really changed me at that point was I now had leadership. And I think that's what kept me there throughout those years. You also, I guess, met some role models there. That's where you first came across Colin Powell and, and others. Tell me about that. Well, you know, and I think about it even in context of, you know, when I finished high school, I actually had was, was doing, was doing pretty well academically. And, and I was, I was a, you know, company commander. So, um, so I was actually, I had a, I had 125 cadets under my command as a high school senior. Right. And, and, you know, and I, I was, you know, a pretty good basketball player and uh, I was getting scholarship offers to go play, play college basketball. And I remember uh, at that point having conversation about wanting to join the army and, you know, saying that, you know, I really want to lead soldiers and I really want to, you know, be in charge of, uh, you know, be in charge of, of, of army units. And one of the biggest reasons for that and the motivation behind that was exactly as you said. I think about some of the mentors that I had in my life at the time and particularly, frankly, a lot of the men that I had as mentors. They had a lot, they had, for a lot of them, they had something in common. That was the uniform of this country. Instructors or ROTC, JR, junior ROTC people who were members of the military, members of the army, who then were our teachers, our instructors, our chaplain. And so the common thread that for so many of the mentors that I had in my life up until that point, the common thread was they all were in the army. And so for me, when I became 17 years old, and I started thinking about what does I want to do in my life and what are things I want to see? Uh, the answer became pretty easy. It was, uh, I want to join the army. One of the things that I read somewhere is that you told a classmate, or maybe this is the stuff that people make up, but you told a classmate that you wanted to be the first black president. And if that's true, I just wanted to apologize for you for having ruined that, uh, helping ruin that for you, because uh, you can't be the first black president. What, did you begin to have an interest in politics then? I don't think that's true. So I'm not sure where that person heard that from. But it was around my later years in high school when I started to think about what would the impact of history and, and policy. I mean, when I was younger, I, I mean, I remember when I was a high school senior, the thing I really wanted to be, I wanted to be an, an army officer, right? Uh -huh. I wanted to lead soldiers because that was a thing that I felt I was good at. That was what the military mm -hmm. school had trained me for. But I remember it was around my, my uh, sophomore and junior year of high school that I met a gentleman named uh, uh, Colonel, Colonel Mike Murnane, who was my social studies teacher. And, you know, I really have more of a quantitative mind than a qualitative. Like I really, I like, I like math. I like, uh, you know, I like formulas and equations and, and, and data as we've talked about. I, you know, I, but, um, but he was an amazing teacher because he figured out a way to make history and social studies sing to me, like learning about the Federalist Papers and learning about the history of the country and learning about all of its, uh, all of its unevenness 
but it's, com- but it's commitment to progress. I always was really taken by that. And, and I think the thing that he really helped to introduce in my own mind, um, was the importance of policy and everything. And, and I started, and I think that was at the point when I started to understand the importance of it, because you realize that everything in your life is a policy decision, right? From the air we breathe, to the water we drink, to the home that we live in, to the transportation assets we have, to the way we're policed, to the schools we're attending. And then I started looking back and thinking about my life and realizing that everything about my life was a policy decision. Someone created a policy frame to make that real. And so I think he was really the first person that opened up my eyes to that and the importance of, the, of, of policy in everything that we do and in every way we exist. You went from uh, there to, uh, you had these parallel lives going because you were advancing the military. I think you were the youngest second lieutenant, commissioned second lieutenant ever. And then you also went on to Johns Hopkins. So you were right. you were pursuing your military obligations as well as academic, Johns Hopkins, a Rhodes Scholarship. And so, in, in fact, I think you were, so you were a, a paratrooper Rhodes Scholar. Uh, which is probably an unusual. They don't always go together. No, no they, they don't. They don't. There were times when I was a student when I wished I could parachute out of class. I remember that, but that's a different, that's a whole different story. And you were there in 2001 when 9-11 unfolded. Was it a weird thing to be sitting there in this very elite academic setting over there in, in Britain while all of this was unfolding? It was so stirring because we were one of the first transatlantic flights. One of the first time they were allowing transatlantic flights back were after 9-11. I think we left, we left on, on September 23rd uh, of 2001 to head over to England. And watching how when, you, when we were overseas, how just simply existing was enough to spur in a conversation with people. Um, you know, one of the amazing things about Oxford was, um, you know, I was one of few Americans. In my course, I studied international relations and I did a, a master's and then began the, the, um, began the deep process in international relations. And we should say studied the process of radicalization in that part of the world, right? So, right. My, my entire thesis was on the rise and ramifications of radical Islamism in the Western Hemisphere, which also, you know, while our focus area was Brazil and Paraguay and, uh, and Ciudad del Este and different places in, in South America and Central America, um, it really did look at where were also, where were the origins of that expansion? Where did that come from? Before we go on with the, uh, the narrative, let me just ask you in this place, do you see elements, do the things that you studied then, do they ring in your analysis of some of the radicalization that we've seen in our own country? Do you see elements that were relevant to your analysis of what's going on in January 6th and some of that? It's about this idea of, of Disillusionment is real. And the thing about disillusionment, when you have, particularly when you have populations who just feel disconnected, is they are targets, right? They are targets for people who want to use and manipulate that. And, and I think that there was one, there was two really interesting dynamics that I think I took from even that research. Um, you know, one was the importance of, of border regions, because a lot of the things that I studied was actually looking at border regions. Uh, the border of, you know, uh, Brazil and Argentina, the border of Paraguay and, and Argentina. 
And the reason that borders became so powerful for people to go into is because no one took accountability, right? Because, uh, because you could easily say you could have Paraguay who could usually say, well, that's Argentina's problem. Or Argentina can simply say, well, that's Brazil's problem. Because in a border region, there's a question of who's accountable for what's happening in a region. Society is actually no different. Because if you have a lack of accountability for who is actually responsible for what we're seeing, you can see how it's very easy to penetrate, very easy to change and manipulate minds. And you also realize at that point, this was something that we saw, you know, even in Afghanistan was, uh, was that if you don't provide pathways for economic inclusion, economic growth, people will do anything. I remember we know there was a, a platoon sergeant, uh, who was talking about this idea of, of saying, um, you know, the most dangerous person that we are going to see out here is someone who hasn't worked for a couple of years, be convinced to do anything. And it's this type of thing that I, I think was also very, very important. When you watch these pockets where you have not just poverty, but generational poverty, where that is something that's a pastime that's continued being laid down generation after generation, where that level of disillusionment is so real in people's lives, then the ability to try to change or manipulate or tell them what's to blame and who's to blame and the why is so extraordinarily high which makes every single aspect of our society more dangerous. We also increasingly have the ability to, and you know, the social media algorithms have been helpful in this. We create these sort of uh, silos, these, these communities of shared outrage that uh, give people who feel isolated a sense that they're part of something. So you mentioned Afghanistan. You went and you, you spent nine months there on the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan, which was quite a lively place uh, uh, to be. And it makes me, uh, and, and you were working on sort of economic issues and trying to give people a sense that something was possible uh, there. Obviously, we, we withdrew from Afghanistan 20 years later. Could that story have ended differently? And if so, how? There were, there was um, a, a few years prior to, um, to President Biden making the, making the decision to be able to make a decision to withdraw all forces that I then started calling for, calling for us to do exactly that. And, and I think part of the challenge was that um, once you get to a point that is very good, that, that you can't articulate not just the why, but what become the, the targets that we're looking for. Uh, you know, the, you know, what, what, what is, what is the, what is the ask that we're continuing to ask these men and women to make? Um, then from a policy perspective, you've got to make, you've got to make different decisions. And, you know, I, I think about, I, I think about what happened in, um, you know, within Afghanistan and the, and the challenge and the complication of it. It's, it's not just about what happened in that 20 years that we were there. It's what was taking place the 20 years prior, right? And that's the thing I think is, is, is really important for people to understand and recognize because the, the, the damage and the challenge of Afghanistan did not happen overnight. Right, right. Uh, the, the fact that we are talking about a place and we're talking about a space and a culture that's been in a constant state of war, constant state of war right. for right. decades, a sporadic state of war for, for, for yeah. centuries. Right. The difficulty of being able to understand that is when you're looking at the dynamics and the situation that we saw in Afghanistan, the fact that we were, we were deployed 
And we were maneuvering in areas where the literacy rate was in the single digits, right? When you're looking at those as the very real dynamics uh, of what you're facing, the idea that you're going to have a military solution out of that is naive. I remember these discussions very well in 2009 when the White House, when President Obama was trying to think about the pathway forward. And I remember those very difficult discussions, those arguments about what was possible and people making the same argument that you're making now, which I think turned out to be the right. One of those people who was making that argument was Vice President Joe Biden in the in the inner councils of the I, I I didn't mean to cut you off, but I, I don't want to lose, you know, we, we, we get, there's so much to your story, I don't want to miss it. The main pieces you were you you got a White House fellowship, you were a special assistant to uh, the Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice. You sound a little like Zelig. Remember that movie Zelig, the guy who showed up in all these pictures all through all, all through history. You spent some time in banking I remember you spoke at the 2008 Democratic National Convention. I, I have a special fondness for that particular event. Uh, and I'm you, sure you do. <laughs> uh, and then in 2011, you had a lot to do to make that event happen. Well, you know, I always say the same thing about that. You always look good driving a Maserati. You know what I mean? But um, you wrote a book that got a tremendous amount of attention called "The Other West Moor: One Name, Two Fates." And it was about your journey and the journey of another man named Wes Moore, uh, who had a, a, a lot less fortunate path. And just tell me just a little bit about that and how you decided to, how you came across that concept of that book. And then I want to ask you a couple of questions about it. You know, I, I remember I was actually, uh, I was actually overseas and, um, and in, my, I, I just received the, um, you know, the, the, you know, I, I received the Rhodes Scholarship and the Baltimore Sun, which my hometown paper was writing an article about, um, this local kid who had just received the, the Rhodes Scholarship. And at the same time, uh, they were writing, you know, a whole series of articles, um, about a botched jewelry store robbery. And, um, and the more that I dug into what happened where you had a, uh, uh, a, a botched jewelry store or robbery where a, an off-duty police officer was killed um, because he was moonlighting as a security guard uh, at a jewelry store. And there was a 12-day uh, national manhunt for these four guys. And finally, uh, after this manhunt, all four guys were caught. And one of the people that the police were looking for that was eventually captured and tried and convicted and sentenced for the crime uh, was this guy whose name was also Westmore. And, uh, and, you know, I actually, I was, I was haunted by this idea. And, and as I continue to learn more about his story and his background, and, uh, and one day I just decided to reach out and I wrote him a note. And then a month later, I get a letter back from, from Jessup Correctional Institution from Westmore. And that one letter turned into dozens of letters. Those dozens of letters turned into dozens of visits. And then eventually at some point, uh, one, a, a friend of mine who's actually, she, she's like a real writer. She's like, you know, she writes about a book. She reached out and she's like, I, I think there's a bigger story here about you and, and the other Wes Moore. And, um, and eventually I, I remember one day just reaching out to Wes and I told him that someone approached me about actually writing a story about our, uh, you know, our, our, our getting to know each other. And, uh, and Wes was like, I think you should do it. And he said something that I, I won't forget. He said, he said two things. 
he said, one, he said, um, you know, I've wasted every opportunity I've ever had. And he said, and, um, and, uh, and he said, and if you can do thing, if you can do something to help people understand the consequences of their decisions and also do something to help people understand the neighborhoods that these decisions are being made in, then you should do it. And, uh, and so the story of, of the other Westmore is really fundamentally a story about how thin that line is between our life and someone else's life. How, how, uh, how oftentimes, you know, when you look at my journey and my story, uh, and, uh, and the, uh, the unevenness of my own history, as I've, you know, as we talked about and, uh, and the story of the other Westmore that you have a Westmore who, as I was getting ready to head off to England on a road scholarship. The other Wes Moore was getting ready to spend the rest of his life in prison. Um, if we can understand and unpackage these lives, uh, hopefully we can do a better job of being able to, um, you know, being able to, to, to intervene. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. I got to touch on a few things that, because if I don't, I'd be remiss. One is you you talked about the Baltimore Sun as your hometown paper. But the truth is you didn't spend that. This came up in the campaign, as things do in campaigns when people are trying to defeat you. But the fact that you, you didn't spend a lot of your life in Baltimore, in fact, very little. You were there as a student at Johns Hopkins, obviously. And so... I guess it's no more of a hometown than the Bronx was, right? You know, I, I tell you, I think that was actually one thing that people got wrong. Uh, and I think it's one thing a lot of the, the, the media and the stories got wrong. Where I think when people talk about where are you from, for a lot of people, that's a very easy question. For me, it's not. Because I move around a lot when I was younger and it wasn't because of choice. It was because mm-hmm. of tragedy. And the reason that I always say, and I will always say the Baltimore is my hometown. I'm a very proud Baltimorean, uh, is, is because when my mom got her first job that gave her benefits, first job that allowed her to work one job instead of multiple jobs, um, that was at a place called the Annie Casey Foundation. Uh, and that was actually what brought us back and had us leave New York and come back to Maryland. And when I think about that was, it wasn't just that that job changed her life. It changed all of our lives. Because when we go back and, and Casey's right in the, right in the heart of Baltimore, uh, as my mother said at that point, you know, I could not keep him out of Baltimore because that was the first time that I actually felt like I found home. Mm-hmm. It was like I had a connection. Some of my best and most uh, shaping memories uh, were right in Baltimore. So when my mom gets that for a job when I'm 14 years old, and that really becomes very much from that point I, I in my you. home. I, I hear you. And the, then the second thing is uh, on the book, uh, which really was critically acclaimed, embraced by Oprah, which is the ultimate authority, as we know, uh, who is the ultimate authority. But there was a reaction from some relatives of the other Westmore who claimed that you were exploiting him. There was reaction from family of the police officer who died you know, with charges of embellishment or so on. So again, I, I feel obligated to ask you about that. I think one thing that people see is that uh, there's no one ever claimed that there's anything that I ever wrote or frankly even said that was inaccurate. 
or an embellishment. There's nothing about my life that I have to embellish. Nothing. Uh, about my childhood, about No, 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 not I've, about yours. I guess the question was about your relationship with him or some his story. But anyway, go ahead and correct me. Yeah, no, no, but I, I, I'm glad you, you said it because one thing, and I, and again, I stand by everything that I, uh, you know, that I, that I wrote, everything, everything that I have ever said. And I think about even the, uh, when we're talking about the, you know, the, the family, it's, it's, it's frankly a, uh, a, a disconnected and extended family from that, that, uh, is, is claiming, uh, claiming something in a connection, which frankly he does not, he cannot or should not claim. But, and, and I think about, you know, what it meant for the larger community, what it meant for, you know, the people within, you know, within this space. It really did become something where, uh, you know, as I've said, I, I've always been very clear about um, my, um, uh, you know, my, my respecting of, of the privacy of, of the officer's family, um, my uh, respecting of the privacy for all the people and uh, all the people involved. But nobody can, uh, nobody can claim that anything that was written or said was either exaggerated or not. Uh, and no one has claimed that. I mean, you continue your business career, but you went on to become this, uh, the CEO of the Robin Hood Foundation, which is a poverty-fighting uh, nonprofit in New York, a r- remarkable program, really, you, you know, that distributed hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to try and fight poverty and support organizations that were doing that in New York. What drew you to that assignment? I think the thing that drew me to the assignment was Prior to that, we had a, uh, you know, I built out a platform um, and, uh, you know, a successful small business that was really focusing on helping first generation students go to and through college. Uh, and I think about the work that we were able to do, which was able to, you know, help increase retention by, you know, upwards of, of 20%. And these are students who, frankly, had a very, very difficult time making the transition because when you're talking about first generation students going to and through college, um, it's both financial it is, it is, it is academic when you're looking at the high propensity of students who have to go into higher education and take developmental coursework and that type of thing. Uh, and then it is also just the, uh, the, the situation where oftentimes life just gets in the way of students who are first generation students. And, you know, the thing that I saw when, when Robin had first, uh, you know, when they uh, first approached me about it was this was an opportunity to be able to really rethink how philanthropy works. You know, one of the things I'm really proud of is the fact that we built a, a policy for the first time in the history of the organization where, you know, the organization uh, had, had, uh, had, you know, raised and then um, and also uh, invested billions of dollars into the work of poverty, early childhood, uh, criminal justice reform, housing, et cetera, but had never ventured into policy. And oftentimes you'll hear people say, well, we don't do politics. Uh, but my point is, is that if you're not addressing the systems, if you're not addressing the policies that people have to exist in, you're just repeatedly going to find yourself cleaning up the debris that comes from those broken systems. And so, uh, so we, we actually went out and made sure we were pushing on things like adjustments to the child tax credit, uh, make sure we're pushing on things like making sure that nonprofit organizations and community organizations that were doing the work can actually get, you know, get paid and get their receivables on time from their municipal partners. Yeah. So by you being able to use those levers, it was just a stronger way of being able to use uh, the power of philanthropy as something that can actually drive a real measure of social change. And you uh, returned to Maryland in 2021. You, you resigned your position as CEO. You returned to Maryland and launched this campaign for governor. And, you know, you've 
you've talked about yourself as sort of a tip an atypical uh, democrat and talk to me about that talk to me about your fundamental philosophy because certainly on social not social but on social investments you, you seem like very much a mainstream kind of progressive uh, democrat so talk to me about the nuances of all this i think one thing that people uh you know they see and they realize for me is that is that data matters in all this. And the reason that I take on, uh, uh, you know, the reason I believe that we have to address the racial wealth gap, for example, is not because it sounds good. It's because the racial wealth gap has cost, cost this country $16 trillion in GDP over the past two decades, right? And that's not GDP of a group. That is GDP, right? The reason that I say we have to address things like child poverty uh, is not just because the idea that children uh, are coming up in poverty should be breaking our hearts. It's about the propensity for a child who grows up in poverty, for them to be an adult who ends up dying in poverty is remarkably high. And that has significant economic impacts on all of us. And so, so I, I think when I think about my, you know, my philosophy and the, and the way I try to approach this work is we were very clear when I, when I launched this campaign and, you know, I've said where I'm, you know, I've, I've been involved in these issues for my entire adult life. You know, I've been a public servant for my whole life. I just haven't been a politician. And, but I have been someone who's worked deeply in community and with community on these issues. And we knew that we were going to focus on the issues of work, wages, and wealth. And, and, and the idea of, of saying that this is about economics. And when we're talking about work, it means in our case, it means we are going to make sure that we're teaching our young people how not just to be employees, but how to be employers. That I wanted the state of Maryland. And we will be the first state in this country to offer a service year option for every single high school graduate. When we talk about wages, it means increasing wages so people could actually have a fair livable wage for the work that they're doing and get rid of the days where you have people who are working jobs, in some cases, multiple jobs, and still living below a poverty line. And when we're talking about wealth, it just simply means the idea that you should be able to own more than you owe, the ability to pass something off to your children besides debt. And so the way I approach that is, this is, this is not just a, not just a governance philosophy. It really is how I think that data is driving the way that we should think about our policy work. Yeah. Part of data is budgets and how, uh, I think you've also talked talk about universal pre-K and some other things. And the question is, listen, I associate myself with your priorities. I think they're important. I think that when you talk about public safety and some of these other issues, you know, we tend to think of them rather narrowly, but I'm sitting here on the south side of Chicago, and I know that these problems run much deeper than how many police we have in a particular community or some of the other issues by which we sort of define the whole debate. That said, it costs money. And and you've also, I think, talked about being fiscally responsible and so on. So how do you square the circle here? How do you pay for these priorities that are costly and still meet your obligation to balance the budget and be the fiscally prudent steward that you present yourself as? When I looked at the work that we did, where, you know, we're with, with Robin, it's one of the largest poverty funding organizations in the country, yet at the same time, what we really prided ourselves on, uh, you know, in, in, in my leadership there was we were going to be, we're going to be disciplined and being able to show what is going to be the societal return on every single dollar, right? Every single dollar we could show you what was the societal return on that individual, on the individual investment. And I think it's, it's both understanding that there is not a, there, there isn't a, uh, you know, there is a cost to an action. You know, 
that you can, that we will continue paying more on a back end if you're not willing to invest on a front end. But at the same time, it's understanding that we have to be creative and thoughtful about the unique resources that we have on Bear, that we have at Bear right now. Where, you know, I think about for the state of Maryland and people look at the initiatives that we are, or that we are championing and the fact that, you know, that overwhelmingly the, the state went and, uh, you know, came and supported us where we won by the largest margin of any Maryland gubernatorial race over 40 years. Uh, it was because we were being very transparent and very, uh, and very, uh, and very coherent with people about not just the things we want to push, but how we're going to pay for them. When we talk about, you know, when we talk about the ability to focus on infrastructure and transportation and not allowing people to come up in, in, in transportation desert, knowing that we still have both billions of dollars that are coming in from, you know, from the federal government, uh, that coming in that's specifically earmarked towards transportation infrastructure. The fact that you still do have a, a structural surplus within the, within the state, um, that is earmarked for these issues. And then also you have new forms of revenue that are coming on board. What's really important for us and the approach that we took in our, in our, in our, in our campaign and that we will take in our governance is it's not just about how are we going about and spending this. It's about how are we actually investing on things that we know are going to create the largest societal right, I get that. But you basically feel like under the umbrella of the revenues that you have and that you anticipate that you can just rearrange priorities and invest more wisely and cover the nut? We know we can. Because okay. with every single one, and we are, we are very detailed about the proposals, with every single one, we showed what is going to be the economic breakdown in order to make that happen. I want to talk to you about public safety. And because, first of all, the crime issue was one that Republicans across the country ran on. We've had, and I think a lot, uh, this has been exacerbated by the pandemic, but we do have uh, a public safety crisis in a lot of our communities. You certainly have felt it in Baltimore. Tell me what you think we need to do differently. And obviously, you spoke to part of this in terms of investments and how you I get frustrated with the idea of this, uh, that public safety and respect for communities is a zero-sum game, that you have to choose one or the other, but you can't do both. And, and you live through the Freddie Gray situation and, and tragedy in Baltimore. Give me your philosophy of all of this and, what, and the way forward. My philosophy is, you're right, we're, we're not going to approach the issue of public safety like it's a, like a zero-sum game. Um, that we have to have policing and police force that moves with appropriate intensity and, uh, and absolute integrity and full accountability. Um, and that it means we have to be able to put the resources in place that make that ensure that people have a right to be comfortable and safe in their own communities. Uh, and that includes things like, by the way, getting and keeping these violent offenders off our streets and illegal guns out of neighborhoods. Yet at the same time, it's understanding that we're not going to police our way out of this. And we're not going to militarize our way out of this. And I think part of the challenge, part of the dynamic, I think about even in my own life, where, you know, where I, I felt handcuffs on my wrist when I was 11 years old. Because uh, I came up in areas that were over-policed and we knew it, right? But if someone would have said to that 11-year-old kid, you know, one day you could be a governor, that kid would have never believed you. And so we have to make sure that we're being thoughtful about the things that we're putting in place to actually make an idea of that real. So that includes things like that from a, from a state perspective where, you know, a third of all violent crime that is taking place in this day and then, and, uh, you know, here is by people who are in violation of parole and probation. We've got over 150 vacancies in parole and probation right now within the state of Maryland. And so when you're looking at that, that has direct and distinct impacts on our individual communities because you have people who continue to be unmonitored or un and unchecked that are continuing to wreak havoc inside of neighborhoods. 
And so the ability to build out parole and probation, that is a state function. But when you're having the breakdown of, of basic state agencies, it means that work is not being done. It means communities are left to fend for themselves. It means that you can actually take, you know, if you look at the, at the, at the, at the closure rate, for example, for homicide in the city of Baltimore, the closure rate is 41%. That means if I commit a homicide in Baltimore, I've got a better chance of getting away with it than I do of actually getting caught, tried, captured, and convicted for it. You could take state resources, put them on loan to the city of Baltimore, increase coordination and intelligence sharing, and actually be able to decrease the workload, increase the closure rate, and make communities feel safer. But the dip, but the thing is, you've got to take that seriously. That's not someone else's problem. And you can't have a situation where cities are left to fend for themselves to be able to address things like the, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the, the tragic level of violence that we continue to see in our communities without understanding the partnership and the relationship that the state plays in helping to address that as well. Well, uh, Wes, I could talk to you for a lot longer about these issues and other issues. You've got a government to put together. I'm not even going to close on the, do you think you might run for national office someday because you would not answer it? And if you did answer it, you wouldn't be worthy of talking to for another hour. So, uh, but it's great to be with you. I, I wish you the best of luck. And I really look forward to, I hope you'll come to the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago along the way. And I look forward to uh, spending more time with you down the line. I look forward to making that happen. And this is going to be Maryland's decade. And I think Maryland's going to have a, Maryland's going to have a hell of a story to tell over this next decade. And I, and I look forward to getting out to the Institute uh, to come share with you as well. Okay. You know, we record this. So at the end of the decade, we're going to check back and see. But uh, <laughs> Please do. Hold me to it. <laughs> okay. Thanks so much. Best of luck to you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.